The countdown clock was ticking in more senses than one. Gemini 6 sat on the launch pad, fueled and ready to go. Two astronauts tucked up in its nose, waiting for the engines to fire. But there was already a Gemini capsule in orbit, one that had been there for a week, and one that Gemini 6 was hoping to catch for a rendezvous to finally put that critical objective of the program to bed. Every second that slipped away was one fewer they would have to execute the rendezvous, as resources were steadily consumed overhead. If they waited too long, the Gemini in orbit would need to come down, and there would be no rendezvous at all. Finally, the clock hit zero, and the double engines beneath the silver column of the Titan rocket let loose a deep roar. Flame spewed from their bells, but less than two seconds after those engines ignited, the rocket fell quiet and came to a rest on the pad. Panic gripped mission control. This could scrap the mission, but more importantly, it could result in catastrophe if that fully-fueled rocket on the pad were to detonate. Welcome to episode 28 of Frontier of Infinity, The Twins. Last time, we took a break from Project Gemini to explore some of the more significant robotic missions that were launched during the first half of the 1960s, including the Luna and Zond programs in the USSR, as well as Explorer, Ranger, and Mariner in the U.S., Today, though, we're returning to Project Gemini to discuss NASA's next manned flight as they continue to strive toward President Kennedy's goal of landing a man on the moon. Thus far, NASA had been frustrated in their attempts to carry out an orbital rendezvous, to arrange for two spacecraft to meet while in orbit. Attempts had been made on two previous Gemini flights, both met with failure. The ability to pull off a rendezvous was going to be a vital part of the upcoming Apollo plan, and thus it was a skill that NASA needed to master before they could make a real attempt at sending astronauts moonward. With Project Gemini moving into its middle phase, time was ticking away. Gene Krantz, NASA flight director, writes in his book, Failure is Not an Option, that an orbital rendezvous, quote, became not only a goal, but an obsession, end quote. He goes on to write later in the same paragraph, quote, We needed to dramatically improve our learning curve in order to be ready for the far more complex and sophisticated rendezvous and docking procedures necessary for a lunar landing, end quote. NASA was not only ready, but desperate to pull off a rendezvous but there still wasn't an overriding consensus for just how it should be done. There had been attempts made with the Agena stage, which had been intended to serve as both a rendezvous and then later a docking target, but they had all failed. In October of 1965, one such vehicle had been launched from Pad 14 at Cape Canaveral in the hopes that it would be ready and waiting for Gemini 6, 
crewed by Wally Schirra and Tom Stafford. But a failure in flight saw it reduced to rubble, and what was left came raining down in a wide swath over the Atlantic Ocean. Just one more setback. NASA's personnel were back at work just hours after the failure of Gemini 6's Agena, trying to work out a better way to do a rendezvous. One suggestion came from the staff at the McDonnell Aircraft Corporation. Walter Burke, that company's vice president and general manager for space and missiles, alongside John Yardley, his deputy, offered that NASA should look to the Soviets for inspiration. All the way back during the Vostok program, the Soviets had launched two spacecraft so closely together that they were in orbit at the same time, and they had finagled the launches so that it would appear from the ground like they'd managed an orbital rendezvous. Of course, this was all artifice, but NASA now had a more advanced crewed spacecraft than the Russians, and they could feasibly maneuver two Geminis near enough for a rendezvous. Frank Borman, who was slated to command the next Gemini flight, was immediately smitten by the idea, even though some among NASA's top management were skeptical. The idea eventually was run by the director of the Manned Spacecraft Center, Robert Gilruth, who opted to hand the idea off to his staff for consideration. Meetings and discussions ensued, and in a brisk 48 hours after the Agena had come falling back to Earth, President Johnson's press secretary announced that NASA was going to attempt a rendezvous of two crewed spacecraft. Though Gemini 6 had been scrubbed following the failed Agena launch, it would get a second chance as part of the newly planned dual mission. Geminis 6 and 7 would fly the mission jointly, dubbed Gemini 76 internally. As the NASA staff came filtering back from their posts in the overseas tracking stations, they set right to work on the new mission. Gemini 7 would be fired off first, crewed by Frank Borman and James Lovell. Then Gemini 6 would come next, with Stafford and Shara on board. These twin launches were planned to take place from the very same pad, meaning that the launch site would have to be combed for debris and thoroughly checked for damage before Gemini 6 could even be brought to the pad, let alone readied for launch. If everything went according to plan, Gemini 7 would spend roughly a week in space before Gemini 6 joined alongside. Then the real work of performing the rendezvous could begin. Mission Control launched into their new tasks with an unrivaled exuberance. New code for the computers had to be prepared, and the control staff had to train and practice for what was to come, a mission like no other before it. But they performed their work admirably, and by December of 1965, the mission was ready to go. Of course, the astronauts had also been hard at work making preparations for the mission. Borman and Lovell met with the crews of Gemini 4 and 5 in order to gain insights into how they should allot their time in space. What should they bring along? How could they be best prepared to endure what was supposed to be two weeks in space, both physically and mentally? It's important to remember that each astronaut had very little room in which to sit inside the Gemini, described by Gene Krantz as a space, quote, smaller than the front seat of a Volkswagen bug, end quote. 
being stuck there for 14 days could be a real challenge. To make things easier on the astronauts, their schedule was tailored to more closely resemble their normal daily schedules on the ground. They would eat, sleep, and work at roughly the same times, and experiments, as well as other tasks, would be completed as there was time for them, rather than trying to meticulously plan every one of them. There were still a handful of tasks which had to be carefully scheduled, most notably the rendezvous. But aside from those few, the schedule would remain flexible. There was also a different problem which needed a fresh solution. Garbage. It built up rather quickly inside a spacecraft, and two weeks' worth of garbage could become a serious problem. Luckily, Borman and Lovell made a trip to St. Louis to work on the problem with the McDonald Company, and together they devised a new system by which trash could be stowed behind their ejection seats. The David Clark Company also got to work on making improvements to the spacesuits the astronauts would wear, reducing weight, improving flexibility, and replacing the rigid fiberglass helmets completely with a new inflatable hood that zippered shut. The idea was that these suits would be designed for use inside the spacecraft only. They could even be removed in flight. By the time they were finished, what had been a 24-pound or 11-kilogram suit now weighed just 16 pounds or about 7.3 kilograms. With the improved functionality for the mission they were designed for came a new look for the Gemini spacesuit. And for all of the improvements these suits represented, I personally can't stand the look of them. I'm no spacecraft expert, but they're probably my least favorite of the NASA spacesuits, strictly from an aesthetic standpoint. Obviously, consumable items were also stocked in greater supply. But still, the astronauts would have to carefully ration their resources to last for the full mission duration. Now, before we jump in on the flight itself, we're going to run through the typical biographies of the astronauts who flew. Gemini 7's crew was drawn exclusively from the New 9, with both Frank Borman and James Lovell joining NASA with the second class of astronauts. I already mistakenly covered Borman in a previous episode, so we're just going to cover James Lovell. James A. Lovell Jr. was born in 1928 in Cleveland, Ohio, and he won his Bachelor of Science from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1952. But that wasn't all the education Lovell had. He also graduated from the University of Southern California's Aviation Safety School, as well as Harvard Business School's Advanced Management Program. He went on to serve in the Navy as an aviator and eventually a test pilot. He was a manager on the F-4H Phantom Program, a fighter jet which has become something of a legend, and logged more than 5,000 hours flight time before he was selected as an astronaut. Gemini 6 was to be crewed by Mercury 7 veteran Wally Schirra, whom we've covered extensively throughout the run of this show. His pilot was to be Tom Stafford, another of the new nine, and another astronaut whose biography we already discussed in an earlier episode. On December 4, 1965, Gemini 7 rumbled skywards without issue. Then the frantic scramble to ready the pad for Gemini 6 began. 
Overhead, Borman and Lovell flew in tandem with their discarded Titan stage for a while, and then started in on a series of medical experiments while the ground team worked on the launch pad. In space, the first phase of the mission went smoothly. Experiments were performed, meals consumed, and eventually, sleep was had. Then, the next day, Elliot C., who was serving as Capcom for the mission, informed the two astronauts that it was time to get to work, just like a usual workday down below. Forty-five hours into the mission, Lovell took off his spacesuit, a task which absorbed a full hour, and thus was kicked off a debate on the ground which would draw out for the next six days. Both of the astronauts wanted to be out of their suits, as it was hot and uncomfortable inside them, but mission director George Muller insisted that one of them needed to be in their suit at all times. A back and forth on the matter persisted as the mission drug out, but eventually Muller was forced to capitulate as those higher up the NASA chain began to turn in favor of the astronauts. Meanwhile, a miracle was unfolding at the Cape. The Air Force, NASA, the Martin Company, and McDonnell were all working in concert to get Gemini 6 ready to fly on schedule. The mission controllers were pulling double shifts, leading one John Llewellyn to park his car on the mission control center's front steps when he couldn't find a parking spot just so that he could race inside and do his job. Remarkably, the countdown to Gemini 6 ticked away without a single issue. On December 12, 1965, Tom Stafford and Wally Schirra were both nestled snugly into their capsule atop a gleaming Titan rocket. It was nearly time to launch. When the countdown clock hit zero, the twin engines at the base of the rocket bellowed to life and began to build thrust, signaling the mission clock to begin counting. But then, rather than rise toward the clouds, the rocket fizzled out and fell silent. The voice of Charlie Harlan, the booster engineer, spilled into flight director Chris Kraft's ear. No liftoff. No liftoff. Meanwhile, Shira and Stafford began to coolly rattle off conditions inside the capsule. The rocket was dead on the pad. A kill order had been issued by the onboard computer, and mission protocol dictated that the two astronauts should eject to get away from the colossal bomb atop which they sat. But Shira and Stafford stayed where they were as kill recovery procedures played out around them. Shira, an experienced test pilot as well as an astronaut, had determined that the rocket had not lifted free of the pad before the shutdown, limiting the danger. Had it lifted even a short distance from the pad, it would have fallen back down and likely exploded. After some time had passed, and it had been reasonably determined that the rocket was not in danger of igniting on the pad, the service tower was used to extricate the two astronauts. The launch of Gemini 6 was scrubbed yet again. The cause was determined to be a premature release of an electrical line. Needless to say, this was not a good development for NASA. They were extremely fortunate that the rocket had not exploded, due in part to the laser-fine response by the ground crew. Gemini 6 could be made ready to fly again, but Gemini 7 was still in orbit, burning through resources with every passing minute. It was only planned to remain aloft for another six days. If Gemini 6 could not be made ready to launch with enough time left over to orient for the rendezvous before then, 
there would be no rendezvous at all. Work on the Titan rocket continued through the night. The faulty umbilical plug was identified easily, but thrust telemetry from the attempted launch revealed that the thrust level had begun to drop even before the umbilical had been released. There was a second problem. Engineers from the Martin Company set to work on the issue, digging through the machine and examining each component one by one until they found the fault. A dust cover had been left in place on an oxygen ingress cutoff valve during maintenance. To be on the safe side, the whole system was replaced, and in just three days, Gemini 6 was ready to launch once more. On December 15, 1965, Gemini 6 lifted free from the Cape without issue and streaked skyward, on schedule to meet up with her twin sister in orbit above. Now in space, the work of orienting the two spacecraft for the rendezvous attempt could get underway. The original plan was for Gemini 7 to catch up to Gemini 6 about six hours after the latter had arrived in orbit. This plan was changed in flight, and Wally Shara fired a short burst from Gemini 6's engines, altering its speed so as to catch up to Gemini 7, which was riding at a higher orbit. As the two spacecraft closed, Shara initiated a second, longer burn, heightening Gemini 6's orbital path. A second adjustment brought Gemini 6's orbital inclination directly in line with 7's, with just 300 miles, or about 483 kilometers, between the two spacecraft. Three hours and 15 minutes after the launch of Gemini 6, they managed to pick up Gemini 7 on radar, though the contact was sporadic at first. It gradually stabilized as the mission drew out, and another series of burns brought Gemini 6 encroaching even faster on Gemini 7. Little by little, Gemini 6 crept up on her sister, arcing over the Earth a little at a time, until finally, a speck appeared in the distance. Gemini 7 was up ahead, visible through the windows at the spacecraft's nose. Gradually, Shara began to slow the capsule, easing he and Stafford up to Borman and Lovell. They drew within a single mile of each other, the distance continuing to bleed away as the capsule edged closer. Just shy of 3,000 feet, or 914 meters apart, Shara tapped the thrusters again to break, and his capsule came to a halt relative to Gemini 7 at a distance of just 131 feet, or 40 meters. Mission Control lost its composure. The first rendezvous in spaceflight history had been made. Two Gemini spacecraft were flying in formation, with hardly any distance at all between them. After so many attempts and failures, NASA had finally achieved their long-held goal, one that not even the Soviets had managed to reach. As the twins raced around the Earth in tandem, their intervening distance varied. At their closest, they drew within a single foot of each other, practically touching. The two capsules were also able to maneuver around one another with relative ease, dancing about like a pair of experienced partners. At one point, they swung around so that both spacecraft faced each other, and even when they drifted into the Earth's shadow, there was ample lighting that both crews could see each other on their respective vehicles. 
In my humble opinion, this mission also produced some of the most striking photographs of the space program, as both crews snapped picture after picture of their twin through the window. The orbital ballet stretched out for hours, but eventually it came time for the twins to part ways. Shara and Stafford backed off to 10 miles distant from Gemini 7 and took some time to sleep before they initiated re-entry the following day, leaving Borman and Lovell to finish off their long-duration mission. As Gemini 6 broke off to return home, Shara sent over the radio, You did a good job, Frank and Jim. See you on the beach in a few days. The rest of Gemini 7's flight saw some issues, but none that resulted in serious problems. A few of the fuel cells failed to operate, and a pair of maneuvering thrusters died, but they managed to return home after 13 days, 18 hours, and 35 minutes in space, with just 4% of their fuel remaining. Another new endurance record, meaning NASA had won not just a single victory with Gemini 76, but two. They were picked up by the USS Wasp, the very same ship that had recovered Shara and Stafford just two days before. The flight of Gemini's 6 and 7 marked a huge triumph for NASA. It had been hard won, but in the end, it proved that NASA could build out the skills it needed in order to pull off Project Apollo. Rendezvous was possible. Close quarters maneuvering was possible. A two-week mission duration was possible. The pieces required for Apollo were coming together, and Project Gemini was ticking off its objectives quite comfortably. In a different sense, it also helped to push the Americans forward in the space race, demonstrating skills and mission complexity in excess of anything the Soviets had ever shown. The tides of the space race were turning. America was rising, and the USSR, it seemed, was beginning to founder. But Project Gemini isn't finished yet. There are more missions to fly, more milestones to achieve, and more challenges to overcome. Next time, we're going to take a look at the next flight in the sequence, which will see Neil Armstrong and Dave Scott attempt to take on the next great hurdle, docking two spacecraft together in orbit. But that mission will also be fraught with dangers of its own. As always, thanks to all of you for listening. If you like this show and you want to help me out, please follow the podcast, share it with your friends and family, and leave it a rating if you feel so inclined. It really does help. Our theme music is Crossing the Universe by Esther Garcia. You can listen to the full track and more of her music on Spotify. Until next time, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you among the stars. Thank you.